welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Jeff Griffin. Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, stories of inspiring achievements and community contribution. Every week, we will celebrate an award program category winner or finalist. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know that Australia is in good hands. Together with our corporate partners and not-for-profit partners, Awards Australia showcase ordinary people from right across Australia doing extraordinary things. If you enjoy hearing the stories of our inspirational Australians, please subscribe, rate us and review us. We'd really appreciate it. Today's guest is brought to us by the New South Government and Crown Lands, who are a major category sponsor of the Community Achievement Awards for Regional New South Wales and the ACT. And I'm really delighted to be chatting with this week's podcast guest, Steve Pearce. He's representing the Gleninus Historical Society. Steve, along with all of those involved with the Historical Society, are true community champions for Crown Lands and for their community. And it gives me great pleasure to chat with Steve today because these people really make their time freely available to make a difference in the community. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, welcome for the opportunity to chat. Yeah, it's really great. Now, some of our listeners may not know, particularly those outside of New South Wales, a lot about Gleninus, where it is, and what are some of the attractions that uh, they would be uh, I guess, enticed to come and visit. Can you fill us in? Okay, well, uh, Glen Innes is in the New England district on the Northern Tablelands. So um, we're about four and a half hours from Brisbane and about seven hours from Sydney. And we're, just as a matter of interest, we're quite high up being on the Tablelands. So we're something like a little over a 1,000 metres above sea level. So at the moment, we're quite brisk and uh, wintry. <laughs> And we're on the crossroads of New England Highway and Gridia, the Gridia Highway. So we're on a crossroads, which is a good, good spot to be for passing traffic. And you mentioned about some of the attractions. Well, uh, some of your listeners may know we are we host the national annual Celtic Festival. We have um, standing stones up on the on the hill. Uh, which are based on the ancient, some of the ancient stone circles on the Isle of Brogca, north of, of North Scotland. Um, so that happens first weekend of May every year. Uh, we, we had it recently and we celebrated Wales, Cornwall and Brittany. Next year, it's Scotland. Last year, it was Ireland and Isle of Man. So it's a three-year cycle. We, and of course, we've got the Land of the Beatties Museum. Um, which is a major regional museum, uh, which I'm proud to be a part of. We've also got um, Emmerville Mining Museum. Uh, Emmerville is about 40, 44 k's um, out of Glen, part of the district, um, but it's a great museum. Uh, I, uh, it's got an amazing collection of minerals and gems and other artefacts. So that's another museum. We're also um, on, uh, because of our location, um, we are close to some really important national parks. We've got uh, Welsh Pool, or rather Washpool, 
and Gibraltar Range National Parks, and they're actually part of World Heritage listed. So they're quite significant, and they're actually high conservation value old growth forest. So part of, I believe, it it's um, Gondwana land for those people who know about that stuff. So we're ideally suited for people wanting to come for a, a weekend visit, for longer, with a family, couples. There's there's lots to see and do, especially if people like the outdoors. And uh, Fossakin, there was a major mining area. Um, so there are opportunities to Fossakin for sapphires. So it's a, a wonderful spot to sort of visit and I really enjoy living here. Fantastic. And we're on the Wurundjeri land here in Melbourne, where I live. Uh, so it's good. It's great to know some of our history and heritage. And of course, the museum provides a lot of that as well. So I'm looking forward to delving into a little bit more about that in a, in a sec. You were nominated in the 2021 Department of Planning and Environment Crown Land Manager Excellence Award, and you were nominated for the significant amount of work you all do and for the value the society brings to the broader community. When did the Glenison District Historical Society come to be and how and why? The first, well, 1968. Is is the, the the date that it was sort of inaugurated and incorporated, and like a lot of these organisations, driven by the community, there was a uh, back in '68 there was a, a need within the, or feeling within the community that steps should be taken to preserve some of the heritage uh, within the district. Um, so it was supported by both the then municipal council and the shire council. They everybody got together because obviously it predates me. Got together and formed the society. Then they cast around for a property to use as a museum. Um, the museum which we're in now, or the building, was the old hospital, which closed in '56, and it actually opened as a museum in 1970. So we're in our 52nd year, well over half a century. So the society has become the trustee or became the trustee of the land of the Beardies, uh, now better known as land managers under Crown, uh, Crown Reserves. So that's that's how and why really in a nutshell. Fantastic. So it must be quite a large property or complex that you have there if you're on the old hospital site. It is. It's not just the central Museum building. We're on something like a little over one hectare. We are also responsible for there are a number of machines, etc., in the grounds, which is part of the uh, the collection. We've got within the museum proper, we've got something like twenty six rooms or galleries, uh, and then on top of that, we've got two machinery sheds. There's an old nurses' quarters, um, which is quite extensive, um, and that's where. Um, our accessions, when something is donated, we accession that. That goes into there for processing. It's also the textile studio and the storage. And then another um, separate building is the Children's Memorial Ward. So that was uh, opened in 1926. So it's a First World War uh, memorial, uh, and it was used as a children's ward. 
but we use it as meetings and functions, some storage, and then also the Glen in his pipe band use it for storage of their instruments. Um, so we are fortunate, upkeep notwithstanding, we're really fortunate with regards to the property we've actually got to look after. That's huge. It sounds massive and certainly sounds very, very worthwhile a visit for our listeners. Definitely. So if you're not in New South Wales, get into it and make your way up to Glen Innes and visit the Historical Society and all that's going on there. So you said about seven hours from Sydney. Now, we want people to come to Sydney, but otherwise, if you're in Brisbane, only four hours. So you, do you feel like Brisbaneites or more like Sydney-siders? Oh, no, um, Glenites, I think you'd have to say. <laughs> um, or, you know, um, uh, it's an interesting, but like a lot of these smaller regional areas, um, as I say, I'm a blow-in. I've only been here for a little over four and a half years. But there is definitely um, a specific feel about Glen. People are friendly. Um, it's got a, it's got a long history, going back to the first European settler was 1838. Um, so on a European Australian level, it's got a, a, a reasonable history which people appreciate. So I think I don't know. I I moved here from Melbourne, but I lived in. Brisbane for something like 16 years, but I feel at home here, so I call myself a Glenite, even though I'm a blow-in. What's your history and, uh, might I ask, what's your involvement with the society there? I, as I mentioned, I moved up from Melbourne about four and a half years ago to take up a volunteer role within the, the, the museum. And the title of the role currently is Museum Coordinator. We have a coordinator system whereby people nominate for particular roles. So we have a display coordinator, a research coordinator, an accessions coordinator, um, a um, various different coordinators in different areas. And they, they accept responsibility for managing, you could say, those sort of areas. I'm here four days a week. I run front of house um, and I've got, in, uh, the 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 court the museum coordinator role. So I oversee. I'm not the manager. I don't tell people what to do, but I coordinate. So all the other coordinators tell me what's going on. So what, at least one person has an idea overall what's happening in the museum. Uh, and I've lucky. Two of my passions are history and um, environment. And I've been fortunate in my working career to have done a lot of work within both of those. So I worked in uh, visitor services services with um, West Australian Museums in Perth and Fremantle, and I also worked 10 years in a conservation organisation in Western Australia. So I've been very fortunate, and I'm semi-retired, and I moved to Melbourne, uh, from Melbourne to Glen to just volunteer and, and, and enjoy one of my passions. Wow. So, Steve, you're semi-retired. You still um, you still work, yep. and you do all this volunteering in and around that. Exactly. Yes. So, um, well, you have to have a reason to get up in the morning. And as I said, one of uh, I mean, I love I love museums. I love history, and it's a great museum. 
So it's it was an opportunity which I took to get away from the big city, uh, to come up to a spot which, we're, as I said, we're on crossroads. We've got great national parks really close, and uh, there's great opportunities to enjoy life. How many people live in the in the region? I had a quick look at that. Um, it's something in the region as of twenty. 22, as of this year, I think, about 9,000 9, in the district. Okay, so there's fair um, few. There's fair few. Um, it's like a lot of areas um, that have shrunk over the years because the heyday of agriculture, etc. Unfortunately, we've lost our rail line and uh, we have an airport, but uh, we lost the flights. So the nearest the flight is Armadale as well as the nearest railway station. But it's, it's a fair-sized community. Yeah. And you mentioned other coordinator volunteers as well. How many members are involved in this society? Um, about about 270 plus members, which, which has been good. We've had a, a slight increase in members joining. So it's about 270 plus members and that within the state, interstate and overseas. We've actually got a member in Canada. Then you've got the active volunteer call, which is something like um, 20 to 25, depending on when they volunteer. Um, that could be once a month on a weekend, or that could be four days a week like myself, or Eve, our research coordinator, who does for something like four or five days a week. Another volunteers sort of uh, do anything from two days a week three days a week. So it can vary. But the active core is about 20 to 25. Well, and there must be a significant number of hours put into the maintenance of the assets. That is, that's the big challenge. And I think uh, anybody listening who is also involved in a similar institution with buildings, um, uh, we are very fortunate to have such a great building. But the challenge, of course, is Upkeep. Um, yeah. And the oldest part of the building is 1877. Jeez. It's double brick, and all the bricks were actually made in Glen at the now defunct brickworks, but 1877 onwards. So it's something, well, 140 years plus. So luckily it's solid, um, but ongoing, ongoing maintenance. We've got a, we are fortunate to have. Um, one of our maintenance volunteers, Simon, um, who's a, a, a jack of all trades. So he's madly doing work. So our aim, of course, is to, we've inherited it after 50 odd years. Our aim is to, when we hand it over uh, for the next 50 years, that it's in, you know, an improved condition, ready, ready for the next half a century. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Well, no wonder New South Wales government and Crown Lands love you and all of those who look after uh, Crown Lands because the work you do is huge and we can't imagine where we would be without you. So thank you uh, on behalf of all of us for the assets that we don't think about. Every time we visit a park or a you know, public park or a forest or somewhere where you don't realise that there's a lot that goes into it and there are a lot of people like yourself behind maintaining these facilities and these locations 
that we take for granted. So really appreciate all that you do and understand in just a little bit now, the complexity and the size of what you do is enormous. And I'm really, really interested to learn more about the land of the Beardies. Now, that conjures up all sorts of things. And the museum, of course, is the Land of the Beardies History House Museum and Research Centre. So what is Land of the Beardies? It's a bit of a mouthful. So Land of the Beardies, that is a legend or story and the the accepted story, shall we say, is um, back in 1838, as I mentioned earlier, the the first European settler was back in 1838. But prior to that, leading up to that, the story goes that there were two stockmen, Duval and Chandler, who were um, ex-convicts, and they were the first, supposedly the first Europeans to see the expanse um, of grazing land to the north of Armadale, which we are. Um, and the story goes they had long beards, and when people or gentlemen were from elsewhere were looking to um, gain properties or runs, as they were called, um, they were told, well, go and talk to the Beardies. So that was um, the origin, except, well, shall we say, origin of the, of the legend. So it became known as the land of the Beardies. Now, of course, you, you being Australian, we have to accept uh, that you never let had facts get in the way of a good yarn. Um, so our uh, heritage advisor, Graham Wilson, who very kindly advises us sort of pro bono, um, did some research and found that they weren't quite contemporaries. So there's a question mark over exactly that legend. But then he's also came up with two possibilities. Um, a loach is a local fish, and excuse me while I read this bit, um, which resembles a European catfish. Um, and it's referred to in northern England, Scotland, and parts of southern Queensland as a beardy. And another one is uh, many Scots um, migrants settled here, hence, hence the Celtic connection, along with Irish and Welsh. Uh, and they would have brought with them their sheepdogs, and the long bearded collie was was called a beardy. So there are a number, but it's become accepted as as the land of the beardies. And the idea is um, they were they were um, bushies with long beards. So that's where the name came from. Well, it sounds like a multiple. Yes, it could quite multiple be. reasons yeah. why it's the land of the beard. But it, it's certainly intriguing, isn't it? Land of yes. the beardies. And that's the, actually the name of the museum, isn't it? The Land yeah, the of the Beardies. History, History House Museum and Research Centre. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so what are the main attractions of the um, of the museum? You talked about a lot of stuff, which is fantastic, all fascinating. What are, what are the main attractions? For example, do you have different exhibits or are they all fixed and uh, long-term attractions? Um, no, well... There are, um, I suppose you could say that there are some that are sort of semi-fixed. As I mentioned, we've got some like 26 rooms or galleries. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, we revamped the medical wing because uh, although we did have a medical exhibit, we wanted to revamp that because obviously being the ex-hospital, 
from 1877 to 1956, um, we wanted to sort of expand that. And we... Uh, we're able to reopen the operating theatre. So it's wow. only been open a little under two and a half years. Uh, we've got the the operating table, the big lights, and a lot, uh, quite a few of the machines. Um, so that is a that will really always be there in one form or another. And then we've got a large, quite a large exhibit of, of drays and carts, etc. We've got shearing, mining. Gleninison District was a major mining district. Um, everything from ars- well, tin, arsenic, bismuth, some gold, sapphire, molybdenite, stuff like that. Uh, we've got a costume room. We've got an area like what we call the chapel area for some of the old um, churches. Uh, we've got ancillary, ancillary medical, optical, dental. Um, pharmaceutical, we've got uh, what we call the slab hut, which is an old hut that was actually dismantled on a property and moved in and, and rebuilt, and people used to live in it. So it's actually, it's not a reproduction, it's actually the original that was moved in. Um, and then lots of other um, interesting sort of, we've got, well, um, convict make bricks, We've got a. We've even got a collection of bar, different barbed wires, shoe making. It's it's something for everything, everybody. So it's a, it's a wide collection. Sounds amazing. No wonder you need two hundred and seventy volunteers to uh, to run it. And I I read that given a bit of notice for groups, you'll actually do a guided tour around. Yes. Um, yes, we've got. Um, um, obviously, we're open seven days a week. Um, varying hours, but um, we also take uh, coach groups, school groups, and other sort of groups from different organisations. So we have, you know, the large coaches with forty odd people coming in. So we will give a talk and a bit of a bit of a tour um, before letting people sort of wander around. Um, we also have complimentary tea and coffee for people to make themselves. We also provide. Um, catering for morning teas and lunches. Um, there's the cost involved with that, but also prior booking. So certainly we try and cater for different um, groups and individuals. Absolutely brilliant. I can only imagine what people's reaction would be to seeing the 1927 replication of the uh, medical a suite where operations occurred and the equipment that they had then compared to now would be quite amazingly stark. Uh, well, yes. I mean, we, we have a um, a cabinet with a series of drawers which, there are with, uh, which are displayed. You can pull them out. They're a display of um, various medical instruments. And you you would need to be unconscious when they were using those on you because <laughs> some of them are. Um, so I think the advances in medical procedures, i.e., um, keyhole surgery and and little robotic things, I think that's that's a great advance um, in the medical world. Um, but having said that, they were certainly tougher than I am. When you look at uh, you know their their living their lifestyles and living conditions, um, they were a tough tough breed, a tough generation. 
Um, yeah. I guess they had to be, didn't they? They had to be. Um, and um, as not crude, that's the wrong word, but um, we, we, we perhaps might be guilty of looking back and saying, well, that looks a bit crude, for instance, but um, saved many lives, um, which otherwise, you know, um, being out in a rural area without any medical facilities, um, you either you either survived or you didn't. So, um, uh, but it's great to actually be able to represent um, that so people can see what it was actually like back then. Yeah, and that goes for all of the the farming, agricultural equipment and so on and so on. There'd be so much to see, I imagine, and yes. uh, certainly I've just put that on my bucket list to come up and see. Please I do. do. Yes. I do remember travelling through uh, to Armadale over the mountains, down the mountains. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's you are quite a way up and it does get quite cold in the winter. It, it can do, yes. But it is beautiful. It's such a beautiful area. The region is uh, just magnificent yeah. and the views are spectacular uh, as you're coming down coming down those uh, those mountains. There'd be such an extraordinary history stored in the museum, I imagine. It would be, must be, uh, you must pinch yourself from time to time yourself when you see some of some of the equipment, some of the things that you do must make you very proud that you're able to present this to the community. Yes, from, from the everyday from the everyday things that we use now, for instance, um, their version of that. Um, nobody thought when you're using something, you don't think, well, we should keep that for future. It's, you just use it and that's it. So to, so, so to be fortunate enough to have those things which were um, common every day back then, but uh, we don't see or use anymore. Um, to be able to sort of present that and, and again, give people a perspective on how things were and how they've changed. And we've got some fascinating things. For instance, we've got um, what it's a tractor. It's called the Blackstone Crawler, and it's circa 1919, uh, made in the UK. But we've been told, and a little bit of research seems to back it up, is that it's the only working type of its kind in the world. Well, um, and we run that periodically, and we have a connection with the New England Traction Society, who are based in Glen, so they they look after the working equipment. So something like that, which um, uh, and it was advanced for its time. Originally, it had fuel injection, all the things that we take for granted now. Um, they didn't make a huge number of them, and I and they did. They weren't that successful in as far as when you're out in the paddock, uh, you want something you can fix with a hammer and a piece of baling wire. So if all of a sudden you've got to deal with a track vehicle, um, which that te- no, technology came from the First World War, when you've got to deal with a track vehicle that's got a in, you know, in fuel injection, et cetera, and it breaks down, most farmers of the era would, you know, would be scratching their heads. But it's an amazing machine. Um, and as I said, we've been told it's the only work in one of its kind. Then we've got a set of spurs, which we've been told 
um, we're born at the Battle of Waterloo. Okay. So, um, which is what? What's my name? 1815. Um, so, um, uh, and, and then... Uh, other things which people come in and they have a little bit of knowledge and expertise and say, oh, well, you know, that's rare. Now, it could be somebody came in and said, oh, we had a, we have what's called a pelican pick in the mining section. Um, and interesting, it's shaped like a pelican's beak. And uh, the chap said, oh, you know, I'm, and he collects things like that. And he said, um, he said, I've never, ever seen any of those. He said, I haven't got one in my collection. He said, they're rare. Now, I'm not, you know, we can only take what people say. So yeah. you, you're learning things like that all along. Um, and we have items which are extremely rare, um, like every other museum. But um, so it's, I'm really, I, find, I, I consider myself really fortunate to, to be in that position um, and to be involved and as one of the custodians um, of the, the community's collection, which it, it is the community's collection uh, for future and for future generations. Well, it sounds like they, um, they've got good people on board to look after the future. Uh, just talking with you, Steve, so thank you for that. And I'd hate to think how many volunteer hours in a week or a month or a year collectively there would be. And without putting you on the spot too much, could you hazard a guess in a year how many volunteer hours there might be given to the maintenance and pres preservation? Well, looking at all the coordinators in the different areas, um, it's got to be anywhere up to 150 to 200 a week. Yeah. So so you're talking, you know, thousands of hours over yeah. the year. Yeah, um, potentially. Yes, and um, and then we have things like working bees, um, where uh, you know we'll um, we'll clear out one of the you know the machinery, whether the machinery sheds and the traction society will come over and we'll have a big clean out and 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 check and all that. So you add that into the mix, um, uh, and then we also do. Um, what, what, what's, what's the term? We go out as well and we, we get involved with um, the Celtic Festival once a year. Um, we, we have a Celtic evening, a music evening. Unfortunately, not the last couple of years because of the lockdowns, but um, so on the Thursday before the weekend, we'll hold a, a music uh, event in the museum. Um, we we get involved with um, displays at the, the Glen Innes show. So there's all that external involvement that you add into that. So um, it might be, actually, you, you prompted me, I might actually do a little ex, uh, curricular activity and see if I can work out approximately how many hours over the 12 months. That'd be a, a worthwhile exercise, I think. Yeah, well, I hope you get a... Uh, a calculator with a lot of figures on it because it would be, you know, I can be brilliant to know. So, Steve, what's the research centre about and, you know, what do you do there? That is, um, okay, research, now that, that, they're always very busy. Eve, who's our research coordinator, does amazing things and Eve's been involved, Eve Chapel has been involved um, with the organisation basically since the beginning, so over 50 years. Um, 
Now, um, family tree research, um, historical research from people, sort of uh, students doing theses, um, academics doing research. We've got something like um, 300,000 record cards that have been built up over the over the half a century and prior to that. Yeah. Um, we are working ever so slowly towards digitising things, but we also... Um, we also hold all the local newspapers, Glenn and his examiner, uh, both hard copy and a lot of digital. Uh, we have something like 60,000 plus photographs, including the examiner's database. Uh, we have some very old photographs going back. We are very fortunate in that the district, in the early days of photography, um, they were travelling photographers. Um, going around and like at other regional and rural areas probably um, hosted them as well. But we've got lots of great photographs of early, early Glen Innes with cats and the dirt roads uh, and things like that. So uh, we have, we hold um, archives from, you know, Rotary, Apex, Quota, all those organizations. Um, so we have a huge, archive database um and uh there are or even during lockdown um because people couldn't go anywhere they a lot of people got interested in family tree so we did a lot of remote phone and and uh, internet and email research um so uh it's it's a an incredible both local community and historical um resource uh, and Eve um, and the other research volunteers do a, an amazing job out there. So, um, uh, well, I had um, three different lots of people come in this morning um, with research inquiries. So it's uh, um, it's great to be able to, to to help people out with that sort of stuff. What an integral and uh, really important part of the historical society. Just. Just amazing. So much that you do. And there's a heritage tour. Is that part of the Glenis Historical Society as well, the heritage the, tour? The the app, the the, the heritage, there's a the, the in conjunction with the council yep. who provided the funding, we provided the research. And again, um research section did 99.9% of the work. Um it's a downloadable app. Um and it provides um, a tour of 40 of Glen Innes' historical buildings. Wow. Um, and also, um, nine, you know, uh, a, and you can do that walking, yeah. but also there is a 19-location um, tour, um, uh, heritage tour drive as well, going out to different properties. So that's free to download both, both Apple and Android. Um, so people can sort of um, you know, walk around town or drive um, and have the information there. So that's, uh, again, uh, a great resource, especially in today's technological age. I reckon. So people can can come to the region, be blown away by their beauty, and there is, and, and know comfortably, there is so much to be able to do and access to see 
and to appreciate in terms of the history, which I think a lot of us are really fascinated by our history. And you're quite right. You mentioned before, we don't actually think at the time that there are going to be developments, you know, uh, in terms of technology after us. So we just think we know it all. But so much happens so quickly and we forget about today and what we may leave behind as a memory for those who follow us. So for you to have all of that is truly sensational and the amount of work that you will do is tremendous and I can't wait to to have a look. I chastise myself for only ever passing through in the past, um, but as I get a bit older, I guess holidays are beckoning. Definitely, yes. Yeah, you'll be welcome, Jeff. Come and visit us. I would love to. And as I mentioned earlier, you were nominated, of course, in the 2021 Department of Planning and Environment Crown Land Manager Excellence Award. It must have been really rewarding to have made the finals when you did. It was. Um, we, 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 we nominated originally in 2020, and we were fortunate to get through to the finals, which was, which was great. Uh, and then obviously we renominated in 2021 and um, it was, uh, we were very, very happy to reach the finals again. So obviously when it was announced that we won, um, obviously there was a bit of, bit of celebration going on. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, the recognition it was about the recognition of the volunteers of the last half a century. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. Yeah. Um, and also the um, to have th- that work appreciated was is very significant for our volunteers. Um, and to to realise that you know it is worthwhile to get involved with um, organisations organizations like a historical society. Um, and uh, certainly, as I said, the, the recognition was well received. So uh, thank you very much, Crown Lands. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I certainly understand the longer I am involved with the Crown Land Awards, the more I appreciate uh, speaking with people like yourself and how much it means and why the New South Wales government, in particular Crown Lands, so passionate about these awards and uh, recognising people like yourselves who really do so much for Crown Lands to make such a difference they wouldn't simply be able to do. And it's important, I think, for the community to understand, and as I mentioned earlier, the breadth of the work that goes on that we wouldn't realise in Crown Lands uh, through the management of, uh, of so many properties and organisations that are doing all of that. So thank you, Crown Lands. Thank you, New South Wales Government. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate their support to be able to recognise people like yourselves. Unfortunately, as you know, the uh, awards were decided to be online last year again, which was very, very, very sad for all of us. We, we love meeting people like yourselves and seeing the thrill of being announced as the winner. And, of course, the winners don't know who they are until actually announced. So it's always such a thrill and a joy to see the reactions and the pride on people's faces as they march to the stage to <laughs> to be to be acknowledged. And people like yourself, Steve, and all of your volunteers there don't do it 
for the reward or the uh, accolade, but to get that is really special. It's really nice to receive it. So we're very thankful for what you do, uh, making a difference for so many. And I would say to our listeners that the Young Achiever Awards are currently open for nomination for under 30-year-olds. I think you and I just missed out on that, Steve. Uh, just a just. <laughs> so for our listeners, please have a think about who you know that might be contributing to the community and let us know who they are. Get on to awardsaustralia.com, have a look in your state uh, at the categories open and think about who you could nominate. And I should add that the... 2022 Community Achievement Awards across the country are currently in the judging phase and we wish all the nominees for this year's program all the very best of luck and we thank you for the contributions you make in your communities. Steve, uh, just on a slightly different tact, what's something we not might not know about the Historical Society? Ah, um, hmm. well, as I say, as a recent blowing, um, uh, some of the families in Glen can trace um, their um, Australian ancestry back to, um, you know, early European settlement in the district. So, um, you know, there, there are like a, a number of different family names that are quite. Um, strong and well known in the district, uh, and there can be, um, of course, when when you get a situation like that, there can be some, shall we say, some debate regarding events and the actual outcomes, etc., of the past, um, uh, and that's purely as an observer. No, nothing acrimonious, but uh, it is interesting um, when discussions, uh, casual discussions, and um, you know, um, disagreements come up with regards to <laughs> what actually happened. Um, so I found that a little enjoyable and, and fascinating. And I'm sure a lot of other societies with families that can trace way back in different areas would would sort of have similar experiences. So you, from time to time, might get a situation where the society comes across one undertaking or one understanding of a situation or a history, and uh, you might get another family or someone say, hang on, we were uh, responsible for all that, not them. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. It's sort of uh, time, time sort of, um, uh, what's the term, colours the memory yeah. one way or the other. So um, I think we all experience it, but it, it's brought out more when you have actually families sort of yes. in a yes, histor passion. historical context. Yes, yes. And as you said before, uh, why let the truth get in the way of... Um, you know, uh, the exactly. <laughs> yeah. There must be times when it all gets a bit too much. You know, you guys uh, and ladies, of course, are all doing such a tremendous job. There must be times when it all gets a bit overbearing and you're feeling a little bit low about all the work that's got to be done. What do you do as a group to bounce back or recharge or reconnect in terms of the challenge ahead? Um, we we, we endeavour to have a monthly social um, gathering um, within, within the museum um, and sometimes that is um, 
just gathering on a particular night. We have one this Friday evening. Um, BYO, a plate and drink and just get together um, and just chat um, and enjoy each other's company. Um, occasionally, we will do a gathering where we will um, we have some really good cooks within the volunteers. So um, they'll do a catered one, um, which is always, you know, always fun. Um, and then certain, it's usually a Tuesday morning um, where most of um, the, the active volunteers are there on a Tuesday morning. And um, so we'll, we'll have morning tea. Um, some of us call it um, Cake Tuesday because somebody usually brings a cake in. So we try and make it as, as uh, less like work work as possible and try and keep the humour and have, have a laugh because if, you, if you're volunteering and you can't have a laugh, you start to wonder why why you why you're volunteering. Yeah. Um, so we try and keep it as light as possible, um, and also try and remind ourselves as much as the, the to do list is never ending. It just keeps growing. As fast as you tick one off, three go on the bottom. Um, is to remind ourselves just how far we've come over the. Pick a period, year, two years, four years, 50 years. Um, and so to try and give ourselves encouragement for what we've achieved, and I would strongly encourage every similar organisation to take time to do this, is to, well, rather than think, oh, we, we haven't done this or we need to do this, this is a problem, is to step back and actually give yourselves pats on the back for, well, no, we've, we've achieved this, we've got this, we've done this. And that's what is so good about, you know, the um, Kremlin Managers Award system is that it actually, um, it actually does that, but it does that on, a, in this case, a state level. Um, and in it's, and it is an external appreciation and recognition of what volunteers do. And I think you've mentioned a number of times, I think off the top of my head, the last time I looked, there was something of, which amazed me, something like 30,000 crown reserves, um, large and small, of different sizes. And that's a huge number. And all those volunteers that actually work within those reserves. Yeah. Um, and I think the uh, – and we really appreciate the awards because that is an external recognition of the work that uh, the amazing volunteers do. And as I said, the last – hundreds of volunteers over the last 50 years. So um, thank you, Crown Lands. Touche. So what are the driving passions that make you and the society continue to do what you do other than the camaraderie you just mentioned, I guess, and good reasons to stay involved? But what what's the driving passions? Personally, um, as I mentioned, I, mean, I just love history. I love I. I love museums. I love um, I love the stories. I love uh, being able to to maintain those and to collect those and hand them on to future generations. And I believe that um, for people that that are volunteering within the society and the museum, very similar, if not not exactly the same. 
And I'm a bit of a DIYer and Simon O'Maintenance sort of uh, guy. He's a bit of the same. We like to fix things as well. And it's to be able to take something, make it, get it working again, and move forward. Um, it's those passions for the for for the community and in the future. So uh, we're none of us are going to be here forever. And to be able to leave it in a, a better condition than it was when we took over custodianship is 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 um, what we're aiming for. Yeah, fantastic. So what's next for the society? Um, well, we've got quite a bit of work happening at the moment, thanks to the Crane Reserves Improvement Fund. Um, we've had uh, work on the, the fabric of the building. I mentioned the Children's Memorial Ward. That is in the um, end part of refurbishment, um, funding from Crane Reserves Improvement Fund. So new roof, gutter, downpipes, windows and glass repaired and or replaced and is currently being painted inside and out. Um, on the rear entrance, um, we're on about stage three of putting a new entrance, double doors on, uh, and that's being painted. So, uh, and we have a long list of infrastructure projects to be done, upgrading, um, also digitization of collections, um, both archives and research archives and, and, and data, but also um, what we'd love to do is to be able to put more, more of our collections online so people, when they're searching for something, you know, a photograph can come up and say, yes, this, this is available for viewing at Land of the Beardies. So digitization, but for those listeners who... And involved, it can be a long, a long and winding road to get all that done. Especially yeah. when you have three hundred thousand record cards, sixty thousand photographs, uh, and in excess of ten thousand artifacts on display and in storage. Um, but that is on our. We're working towards that bit by bit. Um, we'd like to. Um, we had a virtual tour, but it got it was deplatformed. Um, uh, the, the platform that was hosting it, for whatever reason, stopped doing that, um, and we're trying to get a, a, that virtual tour back again, so that people can actually tour the museum via the internet. Um, we are um, trying. We're looking at uh, bringing in audio and visual assets within each gallery. So when you walk in, it breaks a beam and you get a video or an audio or you, you go up to an artifact and it tells you a story. Yeah. Um, um, so there's lots of things on the list. Jeez. We need more volunteers. <laughs> and we always need volunteers, please. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, especially, especially if they can bake cakes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need Annette, our producer on your team. She She's an extraordinary <laughs> cook. Oh, um, there, there you are. Yeah, yeah, she's an asset to our team for many reasons. That's certainly one of them. Do you have any other words, and you've given us plenty already, words of wisdom or encouragement for our listeners, and in particular the groups and organisations that might be listening? Other than to reiterate what I've said before, but also what we is, well, is also 
to when these awards come up, because obviously they've been in, they've been happening for quite some time now. And I look, we looked at them nominating and we went, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't get through, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then come 2020, um, because we had because of lockdowns, etc., with we, uh, we thought, well, you know, we've got some time on our hands on that respect. Let's let's see if we can put something together. And the the process of actually putting together the nomination was very worthwhile. Just going back to what I just said. Um, the realization of what just what we've achieved and it's yeah. not until you, it's like taking stock you suddenly think oh well there's this and there's this and there's this so it was well worth the effort so if there are any organizations out there that um have maybe thought oh shall we do it and have have, have dismissed it because they thought well who are we you know and it's not worth it is to is to step back and at least go through the process of the nomination, even at the end, you might not even lodge it, but go through the process um, and see where that takes you. And I would say, even if you were thinking, oh, we'll do the process and won't lodge it. If you've done the process, lodge it. It's an eye opener. It really is. And, um, and it's also good for the volunteers with internally to say, well, look, we put this together. This was what I've achieved. So don't doubt yourselves. Put it together and lodge it. If not this year, obviously, then next year. Yeah, good advice. Appreciate that. Thank you. Is there anything else that uh, we haven't talked about that you'd quickly like to mention about the society or what you're doing? Um, well, uh, other than... We are always we are always keen for new members and also keen for active volunteers. And if our collections policy is items, whatever they may be, that have a direct or indirect connection with Glen Innocent District, that's that's the policy. Um, and that is because obviously, if somebody has an interested artifact but is outside the district. Somewhere there will be a museum or institution involved in their district that that item should go to. Yeah. So that's that's the policy. Um, but if anybody has things like whether it's whether it's a journal, a photograph, an artifact, even some information that has a connection with Glen or district, then we'd happy to be. It'd be great to hear from you whether you wanted to donate it or we can copy it, et cetera. But also if you want to just become a member um, or you live in Glen and District and you'd like to become a member and volunteer, we're always happy for new faces. Sounds good. And where can listeners connect with you online or learn more about the Glen Innocent District Historical Society? We've got uh, the website, which is www beardies and that's b e a r d i e s beardies history house info now that's our facebook page um, we read, readily or re, uh, frequently post on that and obviously sorry i've just gone off track there that's our website 
So that gives information about um, the museum, the society, the district, and there is um, uh, historical information on there as well. And then we have Facebook, um, which we uh, frequently post on. And if you type in Glen Innes and District Historical Society Facebook, that will give you the link. So we post on that. Fantastic. um, But probably the website is the first port of call. Yep. And then anything uh, immediate that's going on, check out the Facebook page as well. Facebook page. um, We also have an events page on the website, but Facebook is usually where it goes first of all. LinkedIn? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, no. No, it's generally. We we recently did a couple of workshops, uh, one which was on um, communications, and it was discussed about the various um, other social media pages. Um, We are sort of currently discussing that, but we are conscious of... um, the available volunteers and volunteer hours and not to spread ourselves too thin. Yeah, it becomes um, a beast. It can become a beast. Um, at the moment, we'll probably stick with the website and Facebook, um, but we'll see how we go in the future. Yeah. Well, on behalf of all of your uh, members and volunteers, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You all do so much for the local community, for the district and the broader Australian community. So thank you so much for sharing some of your story with us today. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and thank you to Crownlands for facilitating all this. And best of luck to the award nominees for 2022. Thank you. Stay tuned. The uh, finalist details will be out in the not-too-distant future, I'm sure. Well, everyone, until next week, please be kind and remember, together we make a difference. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I have. We would love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. Did you know that Awards Australia is a family-owned business that proudly makes a difference in the lives of those that make a difference for others? And we thank our corporate and not-for-profit partners for making our award programs possible. Do you know someone that's making a difference? Or maybe your business might like to sponsor an award. Contact us through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians, or head to our website, awardsaustralia.com. It would be great if you could share this episode with your network because who doesn't like a good news story? And please rate and review us. We would really love to hear your thoughts. Until next week, stay safe. And remember, together we make a difference.